0: Good to see everyone here. Uh, we are sermon families just back from a week at the beach, so but we're we're uh, excited to be here. Um, you know, I was thinking um, for all of you that are parents, you know, uh, about your children. Children, I think, teach us the best lesson in humility. And you know, coming off this this week at the beach, uh, our, our children were in surf camp, so they're taking surfing lessons. Um, I, I don't surf. I've never surfed. I've seen it. I, I don't do it. But as their father, it did not keep me from giving them advice on it because that's what I think I'm called by God to do. Um, so it was funny, after the first day, uh, my oldest uh, came back and I was like, hey, uh, did, did you get up? That's a big thing. Did you actually stand up? She said, yeah, I did. I was like, awesome. Did you, you, know, you took my advice. And she said, dad, I listened to everything you told me and I did the exact opposite. And so... Um, it just, it really convicted me that um you will never be arrogant when you have children, I think. But anyway, um, getting into the message this morning, I, I know I've talked before from this platform about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And just to recap, he was a German pastor. He was actually a Lutheran pastor, uh, born in the early 1900s. Um, he kind of came uh, into his own around the time of the rise of the Nazi party in Germany, um, kind of during the, the beginning of it, he was actually in England, um, but he was so convicted about what was going on in his home country, he went back at, at huge personal risk in order to teach. And, uh, and he did, and he started kind of an underground seminary, so to, so to speak. Um, during it, he actually he goes to America for a brief period, immediately regrets it. Uh, and goes straight back to Germany during arguably what's the worst part of the war, uh, knowing full well the dangers. His opposition to the Nazi party, his opposition to Hitler, uh, finds him in jail, and he's sentenced to death. And here's a little blurb from uh, from Wikipedia of his time. It says, for a year and a half, Bonhoeffer was imprisoned at Tegel Prison awaiting trial. He continued to work in religious outreach among his fellow prisoners and guards. Uh, some of the guards even helped him put a plan together to attempt to escape. Uh, he turned that down uh, really based on his love for his family. He was concerned that his family may be in danger uh, if he did that you know, because of the retribution from the Nazis. Um, so long story short, on April 4th, 1945, Hitler himself sentenced him and five others to death. And in that trial, that, or, you, know, well, you can't even call it a trial, but in that event, as he was walking out, he, he said that famous quote, he said, For me, this is the end, the beginning, I'm sorry, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. And, and I've used that quote before. And so on April 9th, 1945, uh, he was stripped of his clothing, led naked to the execution yard, where he was hung with six others just two weeks shy of the Allies uh, liberating that concentration camp. So if if you don't know about Bonhoeffer, I'd encourage you to read about him incredibly interesting human being a very convicting but the point is, he spent a lot of time in prison and the book that i'm reading about him it takes some of the letters that he wrote while he was in prison and shares them in fact there's actually a compilation of all of his letters that was put into a book but this particular letter comes from 1943 from christmas christmas of 1943 and bonhoeffer was asked to write a, just a brief paragraph for his fellow prisoners and you know, think about the emotions these prisoners must have been feeling at the time. that you know, they're imprisoned. It's Christmas, the majority of them have been sentenced to death. So this is what he writes. He writes, "O oh God, early in the morning do I cry unto thee. Help me to pray and think only of thee. I cannot pray alone. In me there is darkness, but with thee there is light. I am lonely but thou leavest me not. I am feeble in heart, but thou leavest me not. I am restless, but with thee there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with thee there is patience. Thy ways are past understanding, but thou knowest the way for me. So these words, these words that we read, they're written by a suffering man, by an imprisoned man, one that knows that he is likely going to die. And so why would this be important to read as we move into the scriptures this morning? Well, because our topic this morning is on lament. And this, what Bonhoeffer wrote, is a prime example of lament. And we'll get more into the quote later, and I think it'll make even more sense. But this is Christian, and this is biblical lament, and it is right and it is good for the people of God. And so what is lament? Well, I've had some time to study on it, and lament is much more than just a simple cry. Mark Vrogop has some great words about it, and he makes some excellent points, and he says this. He says, you might think lament is the opposite of praise. It isn't. Instead, lament is a path to praise as we're led through our brokenness and our disappointment. The space between brokenness and God's mercy is where this song is sung. Think of lament as the transition between pain and promise. It's the path from heartbreak to hope. He goes on to say biblical lament includes four elements, turning to God, bringing a complaint, asking boldly for help, and trusting. And I agree, I think there's another, and I believe biblical lament ends with thanksgiving. It ends with praise and thanksgiving. So you see, it's not whining. It is not whining. It's not angry, and it's not a request for vengeance. Because remember what God tells us about vengeance. He says that it belongs to him. And so rather, lament is a cry to our creator God, our all-powerful God, the only one who can help. And it's a cry rooted in our trust of him that tells our loving father of our situation. But we do this trusting in him, knowing that though the suffering may continue, we're going to continue to trust in him because we know that there is a plan. And as difficult as that can be for us to see at times, we know that there is a plan. And there's, there's no better place to look when we, when we study lament than in the psalms, is over a third of the psalms are actually psalms of lament, which is the title of this morning's sermon, A Psalm of Lament, which we'll be looking at the 22nd psalm. So what are the psalms of lament? Well, th- this is a great definition. Psalms of lament are songs and prayers given to God in times of pain, when we feel distant from God, hurting or abandoned. Though each lament begins in a generally negative position. Each one turns back to God in trust and thanksgiving by its end, excluding Psalm 88. Psalms of lament can be cries of desperation, petitions for aid, or pleas for justice. So in lament, there is a cry to God, followed by a trust of God, that ends with thanksgiving to God. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Psalm 22. And this is what David Garzani says about lament, in particular lament in the Psalms. He says the lament psalms also direct their appeal to God Himself, but in stark contrast to the praise Psalms, they seek deliverance from terrifying circumstances. While the praise psalm seems to present a world with no suffering or disorder, lament psalms arise from personal experience with suffering and injustice. One of the challenges faced by the psalmist is that they had experienced suffering while living under the umbrella of God's control. Thus they wonder, is he really in control? Does he really care for my particular circumstances? The the psalmist long for God to act on their behalf, and generally these psalms open with a cry to God and then present the psalmist's lament. And after a confession of trust, the psalmist pleads for divine intervention using words like hear, save, punish. The psalm concludes with a vow or expression of praise. That is an excellent summation of what we're trying to glean from the psalms this morning and psalms of lament. And before we jump into the 22nd psalm, I'd like to recap just a few points about the psalms. Again, the psalms, there's 150 of them uh, with at least seven different authors. Uh, David wins first prize for the most, somewhere around 73. Um, the Psalms are breathed out by God, as Second Timothy two Timothy three sixteen tells us. All Scripture is breathed out by Him, and what we have are a replication of exactly who we are as believers, and that's the beauty and the gift of the Psalms. It shows us exactly who we are. The genre is a lot of hymns and poetry in Hebrew. They're referred to as the writings. And the three main categories of the Psalms are praise, lament. And thanksgiving and sometimes all three of those are contained in one as we'll see this morning so getting into psalm 22 this is also known as the psalm of the cross or the lament psalm uh, some people use it as a pre-easter psalm as well so what we have here we have david suffering we don't know why he's suffering but he's suffering from something and if you think about david's life uh, there's a lot you could probably choose from. He experienced the bet- betrayal of his own children, the betrayal of friends. He experienced the death of a child. He experienced sickness. And so he cries out. And what we have are the cries of a suffering believer. And so I want to I begin looking at the cry here, the cry to God, from verses 1 and 2 and then, and then from verses 12 through 18. So please follow along as I read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by by night, but I find no rest. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death; for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet; I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So this psalm likely sounds familiar to you, especially the first verse, um, again, it's referred to as the Psalm of the Cross, as the Gospels tell us that Jesus spoke these very words from the cross. Some are actually of the opinion he may have even recited the entire 22nd Psalm on the cross, and we'll never know that for sure, but it seems entirely feasible. And, and before we continue, know this: the Psalms are written as hymns, And is poetry, but they're not written by a poet or a musician in the sense for entertainment. They're written by real people going through real life and real suffering. And that's why it's important to know the type of literature when you're reading the scriptures. You may have heard the phrase before, I believe, in a literal translation of the Bible. And usually that comment is presented somewhat antagonistically or somewhat smugly at times followed by some sort of odd directive or excuse to uphold an ancient civic law. Well, here's the thing. I I believe in in a literal translation of the Bible. I believe a poem in the Bible is a literal poem, and poets will use imagery and metaphors and the like, which is what we'll see here. So it's good to know again as we get into Scripture to know the type of Scripture that we're reading. Think of it like this. Think of it like a sad country song. Y'all know I'm a country music fan. I'm in the minority at times. George Jones, He Stopped Loving Her Today. Now, if that is not the saddest thing you have ever listened to, tell me, like, you know, send me a new one. Whiskey Lullaby, maybe it may be up there. But anyway, if you've ever really listened to the lyrics of He Stopped Loving Her Today, it makes you want to pull the car over and cry. I mean, that's awful. And likely whoever wrote that, it wasn't George James, but whoever wrote it was going through something, and he expressed deep pain and sorrow through this. It's the same thing how we see it in the Psalms. And I I, I do recognize David was a musician and a poet, but I think we all were, we're comfortable knowing where I'm coming from here. And so contained in these Psalms, contained in this Psalm, are cries from the hearts of a believer, We have praise from the hearts of believers. The the fears, the anger, insecurities, and sadness, and joy and thanksgiving, all authentic in the life of a believer. Because it's okay to cry out to him. It's what we're told to do, to cry out to the creator of the heavens and the earth for what bothers you. And sometimes that is all you can do. Sometimes in our lives, that is all we can do. In grief and in pain and in suffering, all we can do is cry out to him. My God, my God. Anytime there is repetition in scripture, it's for us to take notice. And it's no different here because what this is, this is intense. This is intense suffering. And the the whole world does this. Scripture tells us this, that the whole world cries out. From Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so what we read here are the cries of a believer. And what I like about this and what I like about true lament is it doesn't need to be packaged appropriately for our God. No, we can send it as it is, the way it is. Lord, where are you? Lord, where are you? Why aren't you here with me? You left me. Look at what's happening to me. It's awful. I'm suffering. I'm suffering and there's no end in sight. I'm in danger. I'm in pain. Lord, I'm shamed and I'm humiliated. These are the cries of the psalmist who is a believer. And let that sink in for a second. These are the cries of a believer, one after God's own heart. And these were also the cries of our Savior from the cross. Have you, have you seen this before? Have you seen true biblical lament? Have you seen this in action? In our broken world, a lot of times what we see is the beginnings of biblical lament, but it ends in a desire for vengeance. And I've experienced this personally September 11th, 2001. Most of us remember that day, uh, where we were, what we were doing. So I was born in 1980, and in my lifetime we had experienced relative peace. Um, We had watched in the 90s as Iraq rolled into Kuwait, only to be driven right back out months later. Uh, We had seen a few small terrorist attacks in my lifetime, but the majority had been thwarted by the FBI. But this was different, wasn't it? This was much different. I was actually a senior at the Citadel at the time. I had no plans to go into the military. And I was in an organizational leadership course that morning. And as the class attempted to start, we kept getting interrupted by other professors uh, that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. And then we heard that another plane had hit the World Trade Center. And, you know, finally we heard, you know, somebody came in and said the Pentagon had been hit. And I remember the professor, you know, he dismissed class. He said, gentlemen, it's time to get to a TV. We need to figure out what's going on. I remember wanting to find my brother. And I have a twin brother that was there with me as well. And and just so we could kind of process this together because then we watched as the towers collapsed here is my problem during that time i was a lukewarm christian at the time well on my path to agnosticism i had no personal relationship with jesus christ during that time and so what i did is i got angry and in the days and the months and the years that followed like most of America, I felt that they needed to pay. And they needed to pay in blood. And they needed to pay in suffering. And they needed to feel the overwhelming lethality of the U.S. military. And I felt that they needed to die. And I wanted to be a part of that. And so, and so I did. But the problem was I stayed angry. And so that brief I most of you remember that brief unity we had post 9-11. That was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing to see. The hopes of the Christian community, we had a revival of that period. It didn't last, and it didn't come to pass. And we, we can argue of, of what the root cause was, but how many of us during that period lamented? And how many of us followed the human response like I did? The human response of vengeance. And that's the response that we see most today. It's not justice. It's not justice, it's vengeance. But vengeance doesn't belong to us. And that's all it was. It was a desire to repay suffering and death with suffering and death. But I wanna be clear here So I'm not misunderstood. I'm of the opinion the war on terror was absolutely necessary because something had to be done. Evil like that cannot go unchecked. And in a broken world, sometimes that is all we have left to do. That is our last resort is to conduct the brutality of war, which we did. And I'm fine with that. What I'm saying is, as Christians and as the church, we cannot be in the business of vengeance Because in the midst of suffering and pain and death, the church laments. If we go back and we look at what David read here, look at what he lists. He says, Lord, I'm crying out to you, but you're not here. You're not answering. It sounds almost like a child's cry, doesn't it? And that's likely the point. He goes on, I'm surrounded, I'm in danger. What I'm surrounded by has the ability to kill me. What I'm surrounded by has the ability to destroy me. My bones are out of joint, my heart has been affected. I'm thirsty, I have no strength. I'm being humiliated by my enemies. What a prophecy, as a side note here. What a prophecy of our Savior's coming. But that's for another day. But right now, he, he's crying out just like a child. I'm hurting. I need you. You're not here. Help me. And as parents, how easy is it to relate to this? How easy is it to relate to these very cries? But these cries, these cries of lament that we see from David are biblical. And this is how we as Christians process our pain, and our suffering, and our grief, because at the end of this, and through all the lamenting cries that we read in Psalm 22, it is done from a position of trust. It's done from a position of trust in our Creator, which is what we're going to look at next, if we look to verses 19 through 21. David says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So this request, generating from the original cry, comes from a place of trust. And here the psalmist is not only petitioning our creator to come close and come quickly, he's reminding himself of why he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And so this petition is not made to someone who's not trustworthy. And that's why trust is such a key and integral part of lament. And again, what makes biblical lament stand in such stark contrast to any other form of cries and fears? And here David says specifically, O you my help, in verse 19. O you my help. So the Hebrew here can be translated as Savior, Savior deliverer, defender, rescuer, and it comes from a root word that means strength, that can mean might. So you see what he's getting at here, and it's interesting, this particular phrase only occurs once throughout the entire scriptures, but it's an amazing summation of who the psalmist is crying out to and just who he is putting his trust in. And is this not what our Savior did as well from the cross. Is this, isn't this what Jesus did during his perfect life on earth? He cried out to God, let this cup pass from me. He did this while sweating blood, but then he trusted him stating, if it be your will. And into your hands, I entrust my spirit. And then he gave thanks to God. So as we move into verse 20, we hear the psalmist cry out for God's saving power from what? From animals, wild animals, right? And so this is where we talked about the poetry. He's talking about those who are out to kill him. Is who he's referring to. He's using this language to express express both the danger and the fear that he's in, but also demonstrating his trust in the only one who can save, the only one who can truly save. So C.S. Lewis makes this point about this as well, about this trust, especially the trust that you see in Psalms of Lament. He says, "...his laws have truth, intrinsic validity, rock-bottom reality, being rooted in his own nature, and are therefore as solid as that nature which he has created. But the psalmists themselves say at best, "...thy righteousness standeth like the strong mountains." Thy judgments are like the great deep. Their delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness. Like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in the muddy fields. He had quite a a gift with his writing, didn't he? Let me address one thing as well at the end. Is anybody using the King James Version this morning? Because if you are... If you are, uh, your translation does not say wild oxen, does it? What does it say? It says unicorns. Unicorns in the Old Testament. I could not gloss over that. I was concerned there was going to be a line waiting for me at the end if I didn't mention the unicorns in the Old Testament. So um, Hebrew, in Hebrew especially, it is incredibly difficult to translate animals. Animals and i've I've learned that and um and it's no different here. I have no idea why the translators and you know whatever since sixteenth century did that or what they were going for. um I will say that Bashan region that we read about still has cattle to this day, so I think wild oxen is probably legit. um some have said it could been it could have been rhinoceros, which I don't know where their habitat is, but um at the end of the day, I want to put your minds at ease. It's a tough language to translate and Uh, praise god that they they gave an attempt i just wish they went and chose unicorns Uh, anyway um speaking of of trust uh, tim keller uh, preached a sermon a a while back um, about this about trust in the psalms of lament and he entitled it this talking to yourself not listening to yourself and and how appropriate And, and what he said was these lament psalms, this is a self-dialogue. This is, this is a conversation you have, a one-sided conversation you have with yourself. It's not praying. The psalmist isn't praying here. He's not speaking to the readers. This is him conversing with himself, reminding himself of who God is. And, and Tim Keller says this. He said, by reminding himself who God is, he defies the devil and he defies man which is exactly what he's doing. And so biblical lament comes from this position of trust, and we see this trust throughout the entire process, and it ends, biblical lament ends with a period of praise and thanksgiving. And so as we look at the thanksgiving to God, let's go to verses 22 through 26, and let's get our final point this morning. David says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Can't you feel the relief? You can feel the the thanksgiving that David has for our creator in these words. Why, though? Why does he do this? Why does he praise? He praises because those grounded in the faith know that suffering shouldn't be wasted. He wants to make it clear that in the midst of all he's going through, he still believes and he still trusts. And because of all of that, he still praises the mighty God. He says to the people, if you believe, then praise him. Be fearful of him. Be reverently fearful of him. Bring all glory to him. And going back to the child analogy isn't this just what they do after a tantrum or what we call having big feelings, you know, kind of an emotional event? They come right back, don't they? I love you, mommy. You're the best mommy ever. You know, this is how they operate. This is how we're created. This is exactly what David is doing. The raw emotion is passed. He's back in the right frame of mind. He's able to digest all that has happened, and he further realizes that the good God that he worships is still good. And this can be very hard. In a broken and sinful world, this can be incredibly hard. And and Virgoth makes this spot-on analysis about praise during lament. He said, I find most Christians strongly believe that a joyful response should characterize their suffering. But they don't know how to reconcile their deep questions, honest struggles, and nagging doubts with the command to give thanks in all circumstances. The gap between their internal struggles and what, they can, and what they believe can feel like the Grand Canyon of a faith crisis. The result is often one of two extremes. On the one hand, I've seen people who fake their way through pain. They tell people, I'm fine, when nothing could be further from the truth. On the other hand, the enemy can use this struggle to cause them to doubt either the substance of their faith or even the legitimacy of Christianity. Something's missing. And this is why submersion in the word of God is so incredibly important. Because in lament, we're shown clearly that we can express all of it. All of it the way it is. We can express the questions. We can express the struggles, the doubt. And David did just that. And all of this leads back to praise. But do you ever find it hard to do that? Or you feel like praise is the last thing that you would want to do in lament, or well, you're not alone, most of us, all of us have. C.S. Lewis makes this point about it. He said, When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all the religious people that we should praise God. He goes on, We all despise the man who demands continuous assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. And Lewis says we get a picture of God that's incorrect, something like God needs our praise. But the reason, the real reason, according to Lewis, that we praise is this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. So we praise because it completes the process. We praise in recognition of how amazing and merciful our loving Creator God is. And we praise because it's good and right. And even in lament, we praise because we know the one who loved us first so knowing this reading this learning from this psalm what do we do with this how do we put this into practice it's actually simple we use it we use it the same way mark vrogop described as that intermediary between pain and promise because this is what god's people do and this is what god's people did and in the psalm we see this In the pain and in the suffering and in the cries and in the shame, in all of that pain, all of that suffering and all of that cry and shame emerges the beauty and the grace and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a suffering cry to the one who can handle it. It's a cry to the one who knows exactly what you're going through. So cry to him in all of it trust him praise him we were created to be dependent on him so go to him we know as believers we know that the pain will not continue we know that the suffering doesn't end there's a shame that will dissolve and our cries will cease because we know that that debt was paid we know the nails didn't stay the grave didn't hold and death didn't endure because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My dad sent me a, a really good video uh, the other day from Alistair Begg, and um, I don't know if you know of him. He's a he's a pastor in the U.S., but I think he's from Scotland. Could be Ireland. Scott, I don't know. Um, I'm going to go with Scotland this morning. Um, incredible voice. If you ever listen to him, the guy could read the phone book, and I would enjoy listening to him. But um, But in this short video, he's talking about the crucifixion of Christ. And and he makes just so many incredible points in this short video. But he says, because of this, because of that, when we're called to give an account of our lives, when we're called to give the reason for our salvation, it cannot, cannot begin with I. It cannot begin in the first person. He says, "If, if we begin with I did this or I did that, we have got it completely and utterly wrong because it's what he did. He did this for me. He did that for me. And he goes on to say that if you answer that question, if you answer that question in the first person, it can only lead to one of two things. It can lead to an abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. Listen to that. If you think your entry into the presence of our Savior, if you think your entry into the presence of the Lamb has anything to do with what you do or what you did or what, or, or what you pray or what you say, it will end in one of two ways, despair or arrogance. And that is a sobering truth to look at. The sobering truth that none of us are worthy of it. There's nothing that we do for it. Absolutely nothing. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by what we say. We're not saved by a prayer that we recite. We're saved by Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Uh, Alistair Bay goes on to finish with this. He imagines this conversation between the thief on the cross and, and sort of the gatekeepers of heaven. And it's funny in a way. He's got you know, two angels basically interviewing you know, the thief uh, that makes it there. And, and they are just as confused as the thief is on why he's there. And, and he says something though so, so utterly profound at the end of this. It's, it's so theologically simple so theologically weighty, so beautifully simple, I'm sorry, to to answer this question. He asked the question, on what basis are you here? He asked the thief, on what basis are you here? And so the thief, the sinner, the one that was guilty, that was absolutely guilty, that society put on a cross says this. He says, the man in the middle said I could come. And so as we leave today, and we leave today with all of our problems and with all of our pain, and we leave with our suffering and our grief. Let's leave knowing this. Let's walk out the doors today knowing that we have a Savior who knows what we're going through. We have a Savior who experienced everything that we're experiencing from grief to shame to pain to humiliation we have a Savior who out of love not only experienced all of that, He experienced more. And in the end, we have a Savior who said we can come. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Father, thank you for our church. And thank you for creating us to be dependent on you. Father, help us this morning. Help us as we suffer and grieve, as we experience loss and shame and humiliation, help us cry out to you just as the psalmist did. Help us cry out to you as we trust in you and as we give our praise to you. Father, we pray all of this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus.